And now it is our privilege to introduce to you our speaker for this week. He has been and is a pastor, a preacher, a church leader, a church planter, and now it currently serves especially in the area of trying to encourage and inspire and bring about more and more churches to be planted throughout North America. At the same time, he's pastoring a church in Kansas City. So would you once again welcome Reverend Mark Bain, please. Amen. green, it's go. What is the highest crescendo of the Christian faith? Some people say it's having a wonderful service and feeling blessed by the presence of God, and I've experienced that. I've experienced going to camp meetings, seeing um, some of the greatest preachers and hearing some of the greatest music. I've experienced the marvelous blessings of God in about every area of my life. I've received blessings financially and uh, in other ways, as each of you have. But according to my understanding of Scripture, the greatest crescendo of the Christian faith is to bring someone into the faith. The highest level of joy as a Christian is to reproduce. And the tragedy of it is most Christians I've met have never experienced it. Wouldn't that be tragic if you lived your whole life and the thing that would bring you the greatest joy you never got to experience? But yet, the ability to do that is within the grasp of your hand. Well, I want to talk to you tonight about uh, this idea. If you have your notes, uh, you can pull that out. We're going to probably go through. I've got some slides and, and things to show, show you, some graphs. Uh, what is the natural response to finding faith? What's the natural response to finding faith? And so I want to talk to you about a couple of passages of Scripture. Uh, the first one is Matthew 28, 19. I'd like for you to stand and let's read this together. Could we please? And then we're going to, we have another slide that we're going to read that one together as well. How many of you think the Word of God's a good thing? Amen. Amen. Let's read it together. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The next one, 1st, 2nd Corinthians 5, 11, 17, and 18 through 20. Let's read it together. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, is a new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he has committed us to the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, you look like a priest. Because you really do. The now, I want you to be seated. I'm going to, have you, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions, and I'm going to ask you to stand in these responses. But let me ask you, how many of you here today are Christian? Stand up again, if you're Christian. If you're a Christian. It's pretty much unanimous. Whew, good. I picked the right crowd to preach this message to. 
You know what that means? Hold on, you can remain standing. You know what that means if you're a Christian? It means that you have the Holy Spirit in your life. Did you know that? And you know what Acts 1.8 says? It says, you will receive power, if you know the Scripture, quote it with me. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you believe that you're supposed to be a witness if you have the Spirit? So what's the one qualifier of being a witness in that passage? Having the Spirit, right? You will receive power when the Spirit comes on you and you will be witnesses. So I just want to tell each of you that you are a witness for Jesus, right? So turn to the person next to you and say, you're a witness. And you may be seated. Thank you very much. I want to talk to you tonight about some definitions, and you'll find if you like to fill in blanks, you've come to the right place tonight. So I want you to um, pull those notes out, and we're going to start right there. Um, definitions. Number one, there is evangelism and there's discipleship. Evangelism and discipleship. Uh, the meanings of these have morphed into something unhealthy. Um, what evangelism and discipleship means have become very unhealthy. They're biblical words, but they're not used very well in our culture. I'm not sure of all the cultural distinctives of Canada. I think I know some of them. But I know in the United States, when you say evangelism, people cringe. Christians do. They think, oh, no, I can't do that. That's, that is something that is reserved for the very extra special gifted and the very extra special extroverted. Somebody say amen if you feel the same way around here sometimes. Sometimes that same language is, is corrupted. And then the other word, discipleship, when, when, when you say to someone, are you, are, you, dis, are you doing discipleship? They instantly think you're talking about a one-hour class on Sunday morning. They think discipleship is Bible study. But neither, neither of those are the case. Neither of them are true. So I want to talk to you about some new definitions I'd like to, to kind of propose to you. Jesus didn't say, go do discipleship. No, he said, go make disciples. And, and, and what he means by that is that, that he's saying to his disciples, your role is to go find people that don't know me and then introduce them to me. I've been in some discipleship classes. In fact, one time I was called by one of the general superintendents and he said, Mark, I'm start, starting a discipleship team and I want 12 men on my team and I've invited you to be a part of this. And I really enjoyed it and loved it and had a wonderful time in the process. We would talk about once every week or two and we'd get on a video venue and we'd talk about a book and do all kinds of cool things. But it occurred to me after about four years into that that everyone in that discipleship group were already Christians. So we were doing discipleship, but we were not making disciples. Do you understand the tension that I'm trying to suggest here? And I think in the church today, we're, we're very good at doing what we call discipleship, but I'm not so sure we're very good at making disciples. Would you say amen and ouch? Uh, if you don't think that, we're going to keep on. I'm going to show you some statistics that might help us to understand where we're at. So I want to discuss discipleship, I mean disciple making with you tonight uh, versus discipleship or evangelism. Now I believe that both evangelism and discipleship are absolutely essential if we understand them biblically. But what we've done is we've allowed this culture to transition what those words mean, and we understand them from a cultural perspective. Rather than informing our culture what the Scripture means by these words, we've allowed the culture to kind of inform us what these words mean. So I'd like to talk to you about these things. I'll share a few statistics that are important to help us understand the problem. There's a problem in, in our world, and the problem is, 
It hasn't yet been saved. Pretty simple, isn't it? That's the problem. And uh, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were in the church. Wrong O. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, right? He came so that the world through him would be saved. The whole world, right? We talked about this, this this morning. So how many people does God want in heaven? All of them. Everyone. And what's happening in culture is there's a diminishing number of people that profess faith and practice faith. And it's worse in Canada than I think it is in the United States. I thought it was bad. I just lament all the time in the United States over how bad it is. But I was doing some reading this afternoon and I found that things are kind of bad in most places in the world. Now let me just share a couple. But there's some good things. Here's some good. If you find something good that I'm sharing with you, I want you to celebrate. You ready? Uh, major religions, annual growth rates. In that screen right there, you'll see that evangelical Christianity is growing faster than Islam and two times faster than Buddhism and Hinduism. If you think that's good, say amen. Christianity is growing in the world. Amen. It's, it's a good thing. The, the, the kingdom of God is expanding and exploding in the non-Western church. Next slide, please. Uh, Y'all need to pray for Pastor Lisa because I've got a lot of slides and she's going to have to try to keep up. True Christianity has grown more than 300 million believers in the past 10 years. That's worldwide. Can you give God a hand for that? Is that exciting to you? 300 million new believers. That ought to just get us all excited. It does me. Only 10 million of those are from our new Christians from North America and Europe. Only 10 million. So that means that 290 million of the new believers that have come to Christ in the last 10 years, only 10, 10 million of them came to Christ through those two countries. Did you know that the USA and Canada is the second, fat, second largest mission, third largest mission field in the world after China and India? Third largest mission field in the world. And, and we're not doing a very good job. We need to do a better job. But praise God, it's happening in some places. And then in China, it's amazing. Look at this. In China, 1948, less than 1 million believers in China. How about this one? 2013 conservative estimates suggest that there's 90 million believers now in China. Could you give God a hand for that? Most of them in the last 35 years. That doesn't even include what's happened since 2013. Over 12,000 new believers are born again every day. This, the great need in those places is for leaders, not people to fill the pews. And so good things are happening. Church of the Nazarene is seeing some good things, and I'd like to celebrate some, some statistics with you in the Church of the Nazarene. Here's one. Eurasia, look at what's happening. If you think that's a good chart, say amen. Some of you think that's a good chart. Let's try that again. How many of you think it's great that people are finding Christ in Eurasia? Amen. How about Africa? Look at this. Look what's happening in Africa. Can you say praise God for that? In fact, give God a hand. That's growth. The church has more than doubled in Africa uh, in, in, in the years from 2006 to 2016. And then look at South America. Praise God. Let's give God a hand for this. The church has more than doubled again in South America. That's wonderful. In Mesoamerica, the church has gone from about 200 and about 70,000 to about 400,000 in those, in those 10 years. Could you give God a hand for that? These are good things. And then look at Asia Pacific. Asia Pacific is growing as well. Can you praise God for that one? And then there's USA Canada. You know what flatline means in a medical field? It's not a very good sign. It's not good. And so what do you do when there's a flat line? Anybody here a nurse or a doctor? When there's a flat line, don't they call it code, code blue? Code blue? And what, what happens when you call code blue? 
Everybody goes crazy, right? Everybody, hair gets on fire and they're running through the building like, like, like somebody's dying. Because they are. <laughs> I think it's time we started going crazy, folks. I want to call out code blue. It's time for the church to wake up and to blow a trumpet and say, we need to go find people and tell them about our Jesus. Amen? Jesus died for a lost and broken world. And if lost and broken people matter to Jesus, they have to matter to us. Amen? Amen. The problem shows up in our worship attendance trends. Let me just show you some trends that will trouble you. Uh, here's some trends in worship in North America. Uh, you can see here that in 1990, 20.4%. Uh, of, of the people in North America that went to church in 2018, 18.7%, 2007, 17%, 2010, 16. Do you see what's happening? You see the trend? In, in work? And that means people who actually come to church. If that troubles you, say, ouch. That troubles me. That means that there's something that we need to find ways to make this happen. I was doing a little research this afternoon, and I found that 20% of Canadians, uh, according to um, Ipsos Reid poll, they told that those pollsters they attended religious services weekly in 2007, 20%. But by 2013, that number had dropped to 13%. Can you imagine? That's more than 1% decline a year. That's in Canada. More than 1%. And, and if we're at 13%, if we're at 13%, that means we only have 13 percentages to give away before there is no church. If that troubles you, say amen. It, it troubles me. And uh, it troubles me in North America. That's 1% a year, and there's only 13 left to give. Uh, so uh, we need to kind of call code blue, amen? But we don't need to call code blue to the pastor or to God or even to church leaders. We need to call, I believe, code blue to ourselves. And we need to say to ourselves, God has called us. See, the greatest army in the world are the people of God. You. The people in this congregation. I was coming to a conference one time in Indianapolis to speak, and I walked in because I was late, in the, and there was a good-looking gentleman on the back row. He was very, very well-dressed, and he was sitting in a, we were at round tables. It was a Sunday school convention, and I'd come in late, so I, I was pulling my thumb drive out, getting ready to go up and give it to the sound person, and, and, um, and I looked at him. I said, well, good afternoon. Who are you? Uh, he said, are you the speaker? I said, I, I think so. He said, oh, I'm just a layman. And I got to tell you, it was almost like that crowbar. It was all I could do to keep from backhanding him. Because there's no such thing as just a layman. Amen. Laymen are the key to the church. Amen. Do you know that every minister I've ever met is also a layman? Amen. You know, we don't, we don't stop being laymen when we become ministers. We don't stop being Christians when we become ministers. We're, we're still Christians. Amen? Amen. And so God began to speak to me about some of these things. The problem shows up. In our church planning trends, look at this. In, uh, in, in USA, Canada, and Great Britain, this is three nations, the Church of the Nazarene has gone from our inception, we've almost doubled every 10 or 15 years until about 1968, 1970. And uh, we had 5,000 churches in about 1968, and that was about 65 or 69 years ago. Do you know how many churches we have now in those countries? 5,000. We've flatlined. We're closing churches as fast as we're opening them. We started planting more churches in, in USA, Canada about 10 years ago. It's been going great because prior to that, for 50 years, we planted about 72 churches a year, and we closed about 72 churches a year. 
This is a kind of a striking thing to think that we had 70, we had actually 81 districts and we could manage to only start 72 churches a year out of 81 districts. That means whole districts couldn't even plant one church a year. But what they would do is every time they open a church, they'd close a church. And, uh, and it, it, it just shows up in our statistics. So we started planting more churches and I think we planted about 176 churches a year or two ago. And you know how many we closed? About 176. <laughs> So whenever a district finds that there are new churches happening, they try to clean up some of the old records is what's going on. And so we have a long ways to go, but I believe that God has an answer, don't you? I believe he has a plan. The problem shows up in our clergy training. Let me show you some statistics. You may not be able to read this very well from there. But less than half of our ordained clergy feel that their ministerial education prepares them well for leading in evangelism. There's about, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's about 25 categories here. And the one that, that, that the leaders in our church rate the lowest on is leading a church in evangelism. That's our clergy. And if our clergy aren't leading people to Christ, probably our lay people aren't. I'm glad that your pastor does. I was just with him last night. We got in after midnight. He drags me to the airport. And there's this young man that comes up and says, Pastor Nick, I know you. I remember you. I used to go to your church when I was a little boy. He, mem- he remembered him. He had, a, he had an influence on this guy. The guy's not a kid anymore. He looks like he's about 20. He's like 42 years old. And uh, Pastor Nick helped him and prayed for him, offered him a ride and gave him some resources. I want you to say praise God for Pastor Nick. God has used him. He's a good man. <laughs> District licensed clergy feel least prepared for analyzing their community and leading evangelism. These, th- that was our ordained elders, the previous stat. This is for district licensed clergy. The next to the lowest thing on a district licensed clergy, they're not yet elders, is leading the church in evangelism. The, the lowest thing is analyzing the situation and the needs in their community so that they can do evangelism. So things are, are, are not real good, but it's not just the Church of the Nazarene. I just left a Global Wesleyan conference when I came from Chicago to here. And, um, and every denomination, every holiness denomination, even the Assembly of God, uh, even the Baptist Church, it's like the enemy is pushing against the church these days. And the church is not pushing back like it needs to. I don't mean against the world, I mean against the enemy. And we've forgotten who we are, really. There's a couple of questions I want you to ponder that will help us tonight. First question, I want you to respond by the uplifted hand. How many of you are a product of an evangelistic effort? Raise your hand. All right, good. How many of you are Christians? They need to raise your hand. Because if you're a Christian, you're a product of evangelistic effort. Someone made an effort to get you in the kingdom, right? Even if it was just Jesus, he died. That's a pretty big effort, right? All right, how many of you are a product of a church plant? Raise your hand. Product of a church plant. All right, a few of you. How many of you go to a church? Raise your hand. That means you're a product of a church plant. Because if, here's the thing. If you don't believe in church planting, you can't come to your church anymore you got to get on a plane next Friday and fly to Jerusalem because that would be the only church that exists. Because that was the original mother church. Amen. Aren't you glad the Jerusalem church planted churches? If you are, say amen. amen. And aren't you glad that Rosewood is planting churches? If you are, say amen. amen. Here's a question. If your parents decided not to have children, what kind of a life would you have? <laughs> you wouldn't have much of a life, would you? I want you to just pause and hear what I'm about to say before you click the slide again. I want to to just tell every person in this room today that every one of you tonight are a potential spiritual parent. You get to choose whether or not you have a spiritual child. God wants you to. Jesus said to his disciples, you remember when he gave them the Great Commission? There were only 11 of them. Remember, he took them 
And he pulled the extroverts aside because he didn't want to offend the three introverts. So he said to the eight disciples, go make disciples. Say no. He didn't do that. No, he gave the Great Commission to all 11. Did you hear that? He gave the Great Commission to all 11, introvert, extrovert, regardless of their gifting. You see, we may not all be gifted in evangelism, but we're all called to do the work of evangelism. Amen? And I know that this may be shot, it may come off shocking to you, what I'm saying to you, but I'm telling you what the Scripture says. Do you remember in Acts when Stephen was stoned? you remember that story? Stephen was stoned in Acts, and when he was stoned, it said that a great diaspora took place, and all the Christians left Jerusalem, and it says everywhere they went, they spoke the Word of God boldly. And it wasn't the apostles. In fact, it says all except the apostles left Jerusalem. The people that left Jerusalem were the lay people. And everywhere the lay people went, they, they spoke the word of God boldly. And the church of Jesus Christ advanced. Do you know that in the New Testament, between Acts 1-8 and Acts 9-1, 12 men changed the world. They changed the world. They, they, they made Christianity the most popular religion in the world in that short period of time. Praise God for the church of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to tell you something they didn't have. They didn't have these. They didn't have Facebook, tweet, Twitter. They didn't have soft chairs. They didn't have thermostat climate-controlled rooms. They didn't have carpets. They didn't have automobiles or planes. And they changed their world in nine years. Twelve of them. If twelve men can change the world in nine years without any of that, in the first century that was caustic against the church. They hated the church. Christians in the first century, if you think it's hard to bring people to Christ today, you would not want to live in the first century. You'd be hanging in Nero's gardens, lighting up his gardens. You'd be thrown into a pit with a bunch of gladiators or with hungry animals because you served Jesus. I think sometimes we think, oh, it's so much harder today to build the kingdom. i got to tell you, I don't think that's true. I think God wants to build his kingdom today. And I think what we've done is we've allowed the enemy to convince us that only the experts are responsible to do it, are gifted to do it, are equipped to do it, are enabled to do it. See, the Word of God says all of us are enabled to do it. Amen? Acts 1-8, remember? It says you will receive power. How many of you are Christians? Raise your hand. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That means you've got the Spirit, and you will be witnesses. So I want to talk to you about being a witness because I think it's a very important thing for us to discuss. Um, so what can we do to solve this problem? And I, I, want, I wanted to share a story with you about my dad, but I'm going to go into a couple of definitions. First of all, becoming more intentional about discipleship is the first thing we can do. Becoming more intentional about discipleship. If you've got your notes, you can fill that in. Um, I think every Christian I've ever met, in fact, every, almost anywhere I travel, when I talk to Nazarenes and I ask them, what is the mission of the church? What would they say? What would you say? When I say, what's the mission of the church, I want you to out loud say what it is when I give you that question. Are you ready? You've got to participate now. now let's, let's stand for a minute. You're looking a little tired. You haven't stood for a minute or two. Let's just stand for a minute. Okay, now, so I want you to out loud, don't worry about what anybody else says, but I want you to say out loud when I ask the question, what the mission of the church is. You ready? What is the mission of the church? 
Somebody said, evangelize. Others said, to make Christ-like disciples in the nations. In fact, that is the mission statement of the Church of the Nazarene. That's our mission. Our mission is, not, you ready for this? Thank you, you may be seated. Our mission, it do, the Bible doesn't say, go and build buildings. It doesn't even say, go have worship services. It doesn't say, go and have good music. Go and have good board meetings. Now, all of those things are an outgrowth of what we need in order to make disciples. But the problem is we're doing all those things, and a lot of us have never, ever enjoyed the great crescendo of bringing someone into faith. So I want to encourage you to be more intentional about disciple-making. This began to change in my life four years ago. I have some confessions I'd like to make to you. The first confession is that for most of my pastoral ministry, I was able to see the church grow without me making disciples personally. I was able to establish systems. I was kind of like the CEO, you know, and, and I would kind of get the church excited and, I'd, and we'd set up systems throughout the community. We'd have daycares or thrift stores or whatever other outreach events. And all of our ministries were attractional ministries. Everything we did was to try to bring people into the church. And I think we should do that. And I did that. And I told the Lord one day, because he asked me, he said, he, he asked me, he said, Mark, he said, how many people have you led to Christ this year? And I said, well, Lord, my church brought in about 105 by profession of faith. He said, how many are yours? I said, well, they're all mine. I'm the pastor. I, I'm the guy that sets up the systems. I, I'm the guy that sets up the structures. He said, yes, that's good. You do that. But he said, how many have you led to Christ? And I said, well, I've prayed at the altar for hundreds of people. He said, no. How many did you go out and find that were lost and bring them in? And I had to answer, sadly, none. And when I answered that, the Lord reminded me that that's what most of the lay people in my church would say. Well, I'll pay tithe. And I attend church, and I do outreach events and stuff, and we do things for the church. We do musicals and things like that. But, and, and, and when I said that to God, he said, yes, you should do all that while you're making disciples personally. Every believer, according to Scripture, every believer is disciple-maker. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord, Paul says. What's the natural response? We try to persuade men. He doesn't say we try to get around people and just kind of be nice to them. He says, since then when we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade. Oh, that's a heavy word, isn't it, for him to use? We don't like that. Persuasion almost sounds like you have to actually talk to them. And maybe even try to influence them for the kingdom. And that's kind of offensive in our culture, isn't it? If you think it is, say Amen. It is, our culture. Do you think it was offensive in the first century culture? Yeah, probably. Because <laughs> they hung them on trees and they lit their gardens with them and they threw them into their, into their crusades and had uh, animals, wild animals eat them. So I want to just challenge you to be more intentional. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, I'm going to pray that you'll be more intentional about disciple making. Would you do that? Just turn and tell them that. I'm going to pray that you'll be more intentional about disciple making. There were three events that contributed. I had a change in my life uh, two years ago, a complete significant. And I mentioned this this morning, and some people picked up on it. I was talking to some out in the foyer afterwards, and they said, you kind of put a little teaser out there. Uh, you said something significant happened to you when you came to Kansas City, but you didn't tell us what it was. Did anybody else pick up that little tease? Well, a couple of them did. Well, let me tell you what that was about. I wanted to share it with you tonight because what happened when I came to Kansas City is God, God changed my life. 
God took something out of me that needed to be out and he put something new into me. You know, according to the Apostle Paul, that's supposed to happen every day. Paul said, I die every day. And I, I have this tragic notion that for most of us, we kind of get going in our Christian life and then we just kind of get it going where it's a nice system, we have good habits, and we just kind of roll along. And we don't really need God, and we don't need God to do anything miraculous or transformation in our lives. We could just kind of live our lives and really without Him. And I have to confess to you as a pastor, I'd gotten to the place where I was that way. And God broke my heart. I'm not going to tell you all the, the ways it happened, but one thing that happened was I came to district assembly. When I was a district superintendent of the Joplin district, I came to the district assembly my first year. And I'd only been the district superintendent for eight months. It was our first assembly. And, uh, and, and I noticed that out of 78 churches, there were 78 churches on the district that I was responsible for. And 40 of those churches had zero people that joined the church by profession of faith. By the way, I mentioned to your pastor, I don't know that I've ever seen a church that's had no zeros in professions of faith in their history ever, except for this church. I want you to turn to somebody next to you and say, we're doing good. Praise God. All right, got it? All right, pat them on the back. Come on, get excited. Pat them on, say, you're doing good. All right, good, encourage them. Then look back at them and say, let's do better. Amen? <laughs> let's do a little bit better. Because we're not even keeping up with the birth rate. Amen? Uh, we need to all at least keep up with the birth rate. I found out that those 40 churches that had no professions of faith, you catching this? That, that they had 3,500 Christians that went to church every Sunday. 3,500 Christians went to church every Sunday for a whole year, and not one person was discipled into the kingdom and joined the church. It got a little bit worse than that. I found that of those 40 churches, $4 million was spent, raised, and spent. So we had 40 churches, 3,500 weekly worshipers for a whole year, spent $4 million, and not one person was discipled into the kingdom. If you think that's a problem, say, that's a problem. That's a problem. And I want to remind you, that is not uncommon. That's almost normative on almost every district in North America. Whew, boy, this is almost depressing, isn't it? Well, so God began to speak to me. So I wrote a training called EMT that teaches pastors and lay people how to actually lead people to Christ. I want to share some of that with you this week. But the second thing that changed me that day was I had a strange encounter of the Spirit. I went by a BMW factory and I had this vision, real quick vision, of a BMW factory just outside of Atlanta, Georgia. As I drove by it, I kind of stopped and had this kind of weird kind of thing. I just I was sitting there thinking about it. And I thought, what if the BMW factory was run like most churches? And I went into the factory and I met the CEO and he took me through and he walks me through and here's the assembly line, all these bright lights and all these people running around, scurrying around and all these machines, zoot, 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 and the frames come in and here comes the engine and transmission and there's zoot, 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 and then here comes the doors and, the, and here comes the body and here comes the hood and here come the windows and then they spray it, zoot, zoot, and I got to the end and I asked him, well, how much did you spend? He said, we spent about, about $15 million a month on labor, electricity, buildings, um, um, uh, metal. And I said, okay, good, great, great. And I said, I'd like an M3. And he said, I'm sorry, we make a lot of noise and we exert a lot of energy, but we don't, we don't make any cars. And God, this was a vision that came to me when I, when I drove by this building. I thought, often that's kind of what the church looks like. That's what these churches on the Joplin district looked like that was back there a minute ago. Uh, going back, you're, you're a little bit ahead of me. Thank you, Lisa. She's doing awesome trying to keep up with me. 
All right, you did. You got there now. Now you're there. I'm sorry. Thank you. She, let's give Lisa a hand. <laughs> so the third thing, and this is a story I started this morning that I'll, I'll finish tonight. I came to Kansas City. I'm driving up there, and the Lord says, I want you to plant a black church in the urban core. And uh, when he said that, I said, okay, um, how's that going to happen? I, I've only got three days a month. I told him it was impossible, and I told him that I couldn't do that. I told him I know people that are full-time. And that's all they do is plant a church, and, and they can't uh, do a very good job. In fact, only about 68% of all churches planted survive after five years. All, all over North America, only 68% of them survive. I thought, God, if that's true, why would I even do this? There's no way that church is going to make it. I said, so what the, what's the church going to look like? He gave me these goals. He said, number one, you're going to have a goal of 200 on launch day, and you have one year to do it. So this was August of 17, God gave me this vision. 200 on launch day? Well, I, I, I just, <laughs> I rebuked him in the name of Jesus again. I said, there's no way I can get 200 people in the church in the next, in, in, in the next 12 months. I'm only here three days a month. You can flip that slide again, Lisa. And the second goal was that 30 of those would be, new, there would be uh, people who are staff members and their family. Go ahead on to the next screen. Thank you. One more. There you go. Two more. Good. Thanks. There's a lot of slides. The second vision was that we would have 85 people come on launch day that would be not yet Christians but interested. It's good to have not yet Christians come to a new church that are interested because then they'll reach other not yet Christians and they'll reach lost friends. And then the last goal was 85 new Christians. When I saw that, I thought it was a nice idea. That's cool. I'm glad God's given me a vision, all that kind of stuff. But I really didn't know how that was going to be possible to see 85 people come to Christ. And so I began to start traveling. And two months into that travel, it became very obvious to me that no one had gotten saved yet. And I'd been in, I'd been in Kansas City for two months. And I only had 10 months left, almost nine months left. And no one had come to faith yet. Remember when I said this morning that intimate prayer is progressive? See, God gave me an impossible dream, an impossible vision. It's just not possible for somebody to do what I'm talking about. I, I just didn't think it was possible. So you know what I did? You, you have a couple of options when you have that kind of thing happen. You can either dumb down the vision or you, can, or you can try to find ways to get the vision accomplished. But if God gave you the vision, you have to accomplish the vision. See, I think God's given every Christian the vision to reproduce, to make disciples. And what we do is instead of us finding, see, we get frustrated because we think, well, I don't have the personality, I don't have the skills, I don't have the gifts, I don't have the training, so I'm just not going to make disciples. Instead of us finding ways to do that, we just kind of dumb down the vision. We say, well, it's not really my responsibility. It's got to be somebody else, the more gifted people. And that's kind of what happened to me in this whole thing. So you know what I did? I did the only thing I knew because I was certain that God had given me this vision. I knew that that was from God. So I had to go back to God and I said, God, this isn't possible. How can this happen? How is this possible? And you know what he did? It's the craziest thing. He started talking to me. You know that God still talks? He does. He didn't stop talking when he talked to John in the book of Revelation. He's still talking, amen. Uh, I think we're not on the right page sometimes. We're not in the right channel. We need to zero that channel in. But I think God still talks. Don't you believe that? I think he still talks to his people. So I began to pray, and here's what God told me. God said, I want you to start doing three things. And if you'll do these three things, it'll change. So when you start thinking about what the most highest experience of the Christian faith is to reproduce disciples, how would you be able to do that? For many of you, as we even talk about the thing, Tonight, you're thinking, oh, no, you're getting nervous. You're getting kind of stressed out. By the way, tomorrow night, the message is 
the biblical cure for stress. How many of you have experienced stress? Right now, a lot of you are experiencing stress. We're talking about evangelism, and it can create stress in your life. The biblical cure for stress and the prescription for effective prayer tomorrow night. But I want to talk to you about the three things that God told me to do. Here's what God said. He said, number one, every day that you're in Kansas City, every 24-hour period you're in Kansas City, you're going to spend one day, one hour, one hour praying for your church. Every day you're in Kansas City, number two, you're going to spend one hour meeting people that you don't know and that don't know Jesus. Then he said, number three, every 24-hour period you're in Kansas City, you're going to spend one hour reconnecting with the people you've met once. I said, well, that sounds like a good idea. What is that? He said, that's prayer, evangelism, and discipleship. Now, that's a pretty big ask, isn't it? Here's what he told me to do with our leaders. If you're a leader in our church, I challenge them every week of your life, not a lot, how many of you guys could find three hours in your week to give to Jesus? Raise your hand. Three hours. If that was the goal of his, of his, of his calling in your life, three hours. So I told my leaders, I said, I'm not going to ask you to do this every day you're in town, but I'm going to ask you to do this once a week. One hour praying for your church. One hour meeting people that don't know you or Jesus. One hour reconnecting with them. And I want to tell you, God did amazing things through that experience. The second thing that we have to do if we're going to overcome these problems that we have that, that we're dealing with in evangelism or the lack of it is we have to demolish two myths related to disciple making. We have to demolish two myths. Here's the first one. You ready for this? This is a hard one. Faithfulness is all that God requires. This is a myth that exists in the church. In other words, we say, man, I'm faithful. I'm there, buddy. I don't have to be fruitful. As long as I'm faithful, that's all that God requires. In the New Testament, do you know that it's almost impossible to define the word faithfulness without fruitfulness being in it? They're almost inseparable in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus said, this is how you will know you're my disciples, because you produce much fruit that lasts. That's how you know you're his disciples. So I have a Toyota pickup truck. Anybody ever own a Toyota? I have a Toyota pickup truck, and my wife decided she was going to drive it to, in the snow for the first time. She grew up in South Florida. She'd never driven in snow. We moved to Missouri. She drove my truck into town with 12 inches of snow on the ground. And she got all the way to town, all the way back, and a block from the house, she runs it into a tree. <laughs> she didn't drive her car in the snow. She drove my truck in the snow. And so she calls me. She's frantic. She got home. She, she walked home. She wasn't hurt, but the truck was hurt. So I took the truck, and I towed it, put it in my garage. And for two weeks, I bought all the parts for this truck. I bought fenders. I bought a frame, and I put the frame, I had the frame laying in, the, in there. I had, the, I had the grill. I had the grill support. I had, I had, I had the headlights. I had the, I had the bumper. I had all the things for that truck. But it took me two years to put it together. It did. And every day that I left my house, see my house was kind of on a hill and, and my driveway was down here. So every day I left my house, I had to walk right through the garage, right by that truck every day for two years. And if you would ask me, Pastor, is that truck in your garage? I would say to you, yes, that truck is very faithful. It's there, buddy. But that truck wasn't built to sit in the garage. Someone once said, battleships are really safe when they're in harbor, but battleships weren't built for harbor. Amen? They weren't. The second myth we have to demolish is that, every, that only the very gifted should be making disciples. The devil used this one in amazing ways. Only the very gifted are to, are to make disciples. Who's a good nurse here? Raise your hand. All right, come, come on down, man. I got you. I want to talk to you. Would you please? 
Come on down. <laughs> uh, she looks like a good nurse, doesn't she? Amen. 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 So how long have you been a nurse? 19 years. 19 years. Now, is this your family here? Some of your family and friends? Oh, no, all my church family. This is your church family. Is she a good nurse? All right, so let me just ask you. Will you... <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. All right, well, let me ask you a question. Were you born a good nurse? No. No. So becoming a good nurse meant you had to go to school, you had to practice, you had to learn the skill, right? Yes. So if you weren't born a good nurse, you shouldn't be nursing because we don't believe anybody should be making disciples unless they're gifted, particularly no, but gifted. but you acquire for what you need. That's right. You have to practice, right? She give her a hand. You have to work at it. Are you guys understanding this illustration? Thank you very much. What's your name? Andrea. Andrea, thank you. You can be seated. We've, heard, we've, we've embarrassed you enough. <laughs> Almost everything we do in our lives, we understand that principle. We understand that in order to get good at something, we need to practice, go to school, and learn how to do it. But somehow, when it comes to making disciples, we think, well, if I don't have a natural gift, I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm just not responsible for it. And I want you just to let that settle for a few moments. I want you to let it settle because I believe it's very important that we understand that God's called every one of us to be a disciple maker. And the great tragedy is that most Christians I've ever met have never experienced that amazing experience of seeing the kingdom of God reproduced in some, I'll never forget the first time. I'll never forget him. Man, he was a young man, I was a youth pastor. You know, I, would, I was going down the street as a youth pastor, I didn't know what else to do, so I just kind of went down the street and I saw where a bunch of kids were at, and I'd stop and I'd talk to them. Because I wanted to get kids in my youth group. We only had six kids in our youth group, and they called me and told me I needed to build the youth group. And I saw a bunch of kids playing basketball out there, and. I was like 24, 25 years old, and I saw him shooting basketball and playing basketball. There must have been 20 of them in this guy's yard. And I noticed almost every evening the same number of kids would be in that guy's yard shooting basketball. Well, I wanted to get all those kids in the kingdom. I wanted to get them all saved. Well, I didn't know how to do it, so I prayed. Now, look at me. Do I look like a basketball player? Say, no. It's all right. I do not look like a basketball player. <laughs> uh, I, but... But you know what the Lord said? He said, I want you to go over to that house, and I want you to challenge the guy that lives in that house to a, to a duel of horse. Do you all know what horse is? Horse is when you shoot the ball, and if I make it and you miss it, you get a letter. If I make it again, you miss it, then you get an O. Then I make it again, you miss it, you get an R. So you, that's how you get a horse. And so, now he told me, to, now what you don't understand is the guy that he told me to challenge, his name was Mike Lee. He was about six foot three. He was, he was a star basketball player for the North Little Rock High School. He played football. He was, the, he was the quarterback. That's the guy that God told me to go challenge to a horse duel. Now, you got to be careful if you're Nazarene because it was almost like gambling. It wasn't really gambling. But I went up to him and I said, who lives here? And they were all there. And Mike, you know, Mike, he's leaning on the back of his car looking all cool. He's got all the clothes and everything. Got the hair. And uh. I said, man, I challenge you to a basketball duel. We're going to play horse. And I said, if I beat you, you got to come to church and bring all your friends. If you beat me, I'm going to take you and all your friends out for a hamburger next week. Is that gambling? I did it. If it did, if I, I did, I'm a sinner, I guess. And, uh, and I went out there and I beat Mike Lee and horse. <laughs> I beat him. You know why? Because I had something working in me that isn't me. I have the power of the Holy Spirit. He helped me. He gave me that moment of, of, of this clarity where I could shoot the basketball. Amen. 
And I beat Mike Lee, and Mike Lee came to church, and that youth group went from six to about 125 in three years. Amen. It did. But you know what happened? Three years in, the pastor calls me into his office. He says, Mark, you've done a good job with the youth group. He said, but the parents of the teenagers that are in the church who pay your salary think you're spending too much time with lost people. And you need to stop reaching lost teenagers and start focusing on their kids. Well, that, that happened. This pastor actually told me that. And when he told me that, I felt this calling to go be a pastor. <laughs> That's when I took my first church. I just want to say to you today that there are people like Mike Lee in every community and every neighborhood around you. And the Holy Spirit's been working to prepare them for you to come and see them. I just want to challenge you to think about possibly going and seeing them. And then number three, this is the third point, and then we're going to get into a, a I'm going to show you a video and we're going to close the service. We're not going to do the back of the, of the um, paper tonight. We're only going to do the front. I want you to slide all the way down to that last video, if you would, Lisa, the one on the end of the, one at the very end. John 14, 12. Do you know that scripture? John 14, 12. Here's what Jesus said. You ready? How many of you believe that Jesus was honest? He didn't lie. You know? Jesus said to one guy, he said, anyone, how many of you consider yourself anyone? Anyone who believes in me, Jesus said, can do the things that I do. Oh, I mean, that's heavy, isn't it? Now, here's Jesus saying anyone who believes in him can do what he did. I don't think we believe what Jesus said. Because we judge what we can do by our gifts and our skills and our abilities and our talents and our personalities instead of judging what we can do by him. Remember the scripture we talked about this morning, Ephesians 3.20? He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that you could ask or imagine. But what's the caveat? Here it is. He's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or imagine according to your natural gifts. According to the classes you've taken. According to how much experience you have. No. Let's say it together. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you could ask or think. It's according to the power that's at work in you. See, it's not us. It's not our power. It's his power. Amen. He's the one that empowers us and gifts us and equips us to do what he's called us to do. Are we ready for that video? No? Yes. Let's turn the lights out. I want you to watch this and then we're going to close. I had a vision. I saw a dark and stormy ocean. In that ocean, I thought I saw multitudes of poor human beings plunging and floating and shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And out of this dark, angry ocean, I saw a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the stormy seas. And all around the base of the rock, I saw a vast platform. And on this platform, I saw with delight a number of the poor wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. 
and I saw that some of those who were already safe on the platform were fervently helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach safety. But something puzzled me. Although they had all been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten all about it. Anyway, the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them. And what was equally strange and perplexing to me was that most of these people did not seem to have any care, that is, any agonizing care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their eyes. But then I saw something wonderful. I saw a great being from above come straight from his palace, right through the dark clouds, and he leapt right into the raging sea among the drowning people. And there I saw him toiling to rescue them until the sweat of his great anguish ran down in blood. And he was continually crying to those already rescued, to those whom he had helped with his own bleeding hands, to come and help him in the painful and laborious task of saving the lost. But the strangest thing of all was that those on the platform to whom he called were so taken up with their trades and professions and money saving and pleasures and families and community and gatherings and religions and arguments about it that they did not respond to the cry that came to them from this wonderful being who had himself by his spirit gone down into the sea. And so the multitude went on struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. And then I saw something that seemed stranger than anything that had happened before in this very strange vision. Those whom this wonderful being cried out to to come and help him in his difficult task were always praying and crying to him to come to them. Some wanted him to come and stay with them and spend his time and strength in making them happier. Others wanted him to come and take away various doubts and misgivings they had concerning the truth of some letters which he had written them. Others wanted him to come and make them feel more secure on the rock, so secure that they would be totally sure they would never slip off again. They used to meet and get as close to the rock as they could, and looking towards the mainland where they thought the great being was, they would cry out, Come to us, come and help us. But all this time, he was down among the poor drowning creatures, crying to them in a hoarse voice, Come to me, come and help me. And then I understood it all. It was plain enough. That sea was the ocean of life, the sea of real, actual human existence. Those multitudes of people struggling in the stormy sea were the billions of sinners from every race, language, and nation. That great sheltering rock was Calvary, the place of the cross. And the people on it were those who had been rescued from sin and hell and who professed to be followers of Jesus Christ. That mighty being who called to them from the tempest was the Son of God, the same yesterday, today, and forever who is still struggling to save the dying multitudes about us from this terrible doom of damnation, and whose voice can be heard above the music and machinery and noise of life, calling on the rescued to come and help him save the world. My friends in Christ, you are rescued from the waters. 
You are on the rock. Jesus is in the dark sea, calling on you to come and help him. Will you go? I'd like for you to bow your heads with me. Every time I watch that video, my heart breaks because it reminds me so much of my church and so much of my life prior to two years ago when that changed for me. So I'd like for you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. I'd like for you to stand. First question, you'd say, I know that there's a problem. We're not doing a good enough job in reaching the lost. I'd like for you to stand. I know there's a problem. We're not doing a good enough job of reaching the lost. As you stand, I want you to remain standing. I'm going to ask another question for those who are still seated. If you're still seated, and you'd say, I know that I'm probably not doing enough personally for people that don't know Jesus. Would you stand? I'm probably not doing enough personally for people that don't know Jesus. I'm going to ask you to respond by slipping out, remain standing to the altar. We're going to have a group prayer here tonight together. Because whenever the Holy Spirit comes throughout history, what happens is the kingdom grows. When Pentecost happened, the church began to multiply like it had never done before. Whenever there's revival, it starts in our hearts and it gets out into others' hearts. So here's the question, and I want you, if, if, if this question applies to you, I'd like for you to slip out and come down. I want to pray for you tonight. You'd say, the reason I'm not doing much, as much as I'd like to for the loss, is because I have fears and anxiety about it. Would you just slip out? I know that there, you're all over the place here. Most Christians have that anxiety. Do you have enough courage to step out where you're at? We're going to have a time of prayer tonight down here. Uh, the reason that, I, that I'm not doing as much as I should is because of some anxieties and fears I have about, about talking to people that I don't know. Anybody like that? We're going to pause for a minute and uh, let you slip out. Thank you. I have some fears. I, I'm, I'm afraid, another question, I'm afraid I might do it wrong. So I don't want to do it wrong, and, and, and I, I'd like to change that. I'm afraid I'll do it wrong. Would you step out and come on down? How many of you would say that the reason I don't do enough for the loss is because I'm not equipped? I don't think I have the right equipment. I don't know how to, how to do it. Would you slip out and come down? Just, just all over. Just feel free to come down. We're going to have a group prayer together tonight. Now, if you've been leading people to Christ on a regular basis, you ought to just stay right there in your seat, and you're going to feel good about it. But I happen to know that most of us are not doing that. And uh, we're going to answer to God one day for all the tools we have and so little, so little success in doing what he's called us to do. How many of you would say, the reason I don't do it is because I just my time is so pressed, and I have so little time in my life. And if I had more time, I'd, be, I'd love to do more for the loss. Would you slip out? I'm going to ask you this one. How many of you would say, Pastor Mark, maybe it's pride. I know that my culture doesn't like it when we think about evangelizing. We're accused of proselytizing. We're accused of, of all kinds of bad things. And maybe I've got some personal issues with pride. I, I don't want people to think badly of me. And if I start thinking about being active in evangelism, probably some people might get offended. And I don't like offending people. I, I don't want to put people in an uncomfortable situation. 
Anybody would say, that's, that's my reason for not doing as much as I should in disciple making. Last question, and then we're going to pray. He said, I just don't have the courage. There have been times when I've known I should have said something to someone and I didn't. I'd like for God to give me courage. See, I look back on my life. I told my story this morning. I met a guy at Virginia Beach. And I look back and I think, what if that guy didn't have courage? What if that guy decided that it was unpopular and that I may not like him telling me about Jesus? What if that guy decided it wasn't socially acceptable for him to share his faith with me? What if anything happened to prevent him? I'd probably be dead or in, in hell right now, and, and I wouldn't be married to a godly wife, and I wouldn't have two godly children, one that's going into, into ministry. And all the people that have come to Christ through, throughout my life in ministry, you could just wipe them off because one guy just didn't make the decision. I'd like us to pray tonight that God would help us. I think that everybody in the place knows our mission. We all know that we're supposed to make Christ like disciples. Most of us are not doing it. I want you to know whether you're sitting in your, standing by the, in your pew or standing up here at the altar tonight, I want you to know that you have everything you need in you to be a disciple maker if you have the Spirit. We're going to try to give you some tools this week. I'm going to share with you tomorrow night how do you actually what makes you get up and move out and actually decide to actually talk to someone? How do you know who to talk to? Where do you find people to talk to? And what do you say to them? Do you get up to them and hit them with the King James Bible and tell them they're going to hell? No. How do you start those relationships? How do you get to know them? <clears throat> My prayer is that every believer, and particularly every Nazarene, will lead someone to Jesus this year. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if you could do that? Well, if you did that, this church would double. Next year, you wouldn't have enough room. You'd have to build a building for all of them. But the most important thing is those people would then be headed for heaven. Amen. They'd be, be living a life in Jesus. Amen. So I want us to pray a prayer this evening. If, you, if you'd like to kneel, you, please do that. If you're here, come on down and kneel. Let's just kind of gather around. Would you just maybe get your, touch somebody next to you, put your hand on their shoulder. We're just going to have a group prayer tonight that God will help us. Oh, God, help us. We're going to stand before him one day. He's going to ask us to give an account for what we did with all the talents that he gave us. We have so much. I think sometimes that's our biggest problem. We have so much that we just don't have time to do that which is essential. I thank God. I was going to testify. I thank God for that young man that met me at the beach in 1976 because I have a life now that's the most amazing thing and I couldn't have imagined it prior to him speaking with me. And I want you to know, all throughout this congregation, the Holy Spirit has prepared people through His provenient grace in your community, in the places you do business, in the places where you get your hair done or where you get your car washed or pump your gas. All across the city, the Holy Spirit, through His provenient grace, is preparing people for the moments like I had that night at Virginia Beach. And because of that moment, my life has changed. And I believe God wants you to be used for that purpose. So I'd like to pray for you. Father, we love you tonight. We say we love you. Lord, for 25 years of ministry, I said I loved you. And I was satisfied with setting up systems and structures in the church. And you told me, yeah, you should do that, Mark. Do it while you're making disciples. 
For the first time in my life, Lord, you moved me outside of my own schedule, my own comfort zone. You made me shift some of my habits and behaviors. And Lord, I believe tonight in this place that, that this week, between now and Friday night when we're done with this revival, Father, that you're going to change some behaviors. That the people that are here at this altar tonight, that I believe that your Holy Spirit is speaking to them about things they can do in their life that will free up some time and free up some space and that will alleviate some fears and eliminate some pride. And Lord, give them some courage and help them to find the people that need Jesus, Lord. Because Lord, it's just like Moses. Out in Midian, enjoying his life. He has a family. Everything's good. And you interrupted it with a burnt bush that wasn't consumed. And you said, I've heard the cries of my people in Israel, in Egypt. They've come up to me, and I need to send you as a messenger to deliver them. Lord, it messed up his life. It changed his schedule, his habits. He had to move. And I believe tonight, Lord, if we were to listen real carefully, we too could hear the cries of the people in Toronto, crying out, people that are wealthy but broken, husbands who are being unfaithful to their wives, and they cry out, God, I don't want to do this. I've ruined my marriage. Where's hope? Wives who have done that to their husband, crying out, oh, God. And Lord, we don't know they're crying out to you, but you know because you hear their cries. They've reached heaven, Lord. And there are drug addicts and alcoholics, Lord, and people that are involved with all kinds of sin all around our communities, and they're crying out in their moment, in that moment when they've done too much drug or drank too much beer, they had a crisis in their family and their life, and they're crying out. They don't even know who they're crying out to, but we know who they're crying out to. And Lord, every day you hear their cries, and you're looking, you're looking throughout Canada, throughout Toronto, and throughout the United States. And you're saying, who can I send? Who's going to be a deliverer? Who's going to set my people free? I pray that you would help every person in this room to know that each of them have the power to be that deliverer because they have your spirit. I pray that you would push us past our fears, push us past our pride, push us past our complacency, and God, would you bring revival to our souls and get us off that pier and get us out into the ocean, Lord. Help us to be like Jesus was. Jesus, you, did, you went out and you saw a tax collector. He wasn't in the church. You saw Matthew at the tax collector's booth and you said, come follow me. And then you went down by the lake and you saw Peter, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee. And you weren't in the church, Lord. You, you went there and you said, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then you let the man, met the woman at the beach, Lord, that was called adultery. You were at the beach where they caught a woman in adultery. It wasn't in church. And then you met the Samaritan woman at the well, a notorious woman, hopeless there because she didn't want to be whispered about because of her lifestyle. She, too, was crying out, and Lord Jesus, you met her there. And the marvelous thing about your example, Lord, is when you met them there, we follow the rest of the New Testament, they all started coming to church. I pray that you'll help us, Lord, to take your commission seriously, to go and make disciples of all nations. That every person in this room, Lord, every believer that's here in this place 
is a priest of God. Lord, your word says in Revelations 1, 6, to him who loved us and saved us from our sin in his own blood and has made us to be a kingdom of priests unto God, to him to be glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Lord, thank you for these priests. Some of us, Lord, we confess we've been sleepy. Some of us, Lord, we haven't heard the code blue call. We haven't been alarmed, Lord, because we're going to a good church and things are going well, but the truth is, Lord, lots of people around us are perishing without you. So help us to come and join you, Jesus, at the beach. Help us to come and join you at the tax collector's booth. Help us to come join you at the well, Father. Help us to come join you by the lake, Lord, and find those who don't know you. Establish relationships with them and pray for them until we see them come into the kingdom. Lord, multiply your church. Call your deliverers and help us to respond. We love you and we thank you for this night and thank you for this week. We pray that you'll open our hearts and our minds and help us to submit our schedules, our fears, our anxieties, our pride to you. Make us the people of God like the people of God in the first century that changed the world, 12 of them, in nine years. Lord, we believe with all of our hearts tonight that this body, that the, the, the Rosewood Church and those that are represented here tonight have all the power they need inside of them to impact this community for Jesus in ways that they couldn't even imagine. Use them to your glory. Fill them with your spirit. Lord, in, in, infuse them with your courage. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Pastor.